0: Hey there. Thanks for coming. Before we get started, just a few reminders. You can sign up for text alerts from me, Big Mama. You'll get insider texts before anyone else with invitations to be a guest on the podcast. New episode releases, secret merch drops. Just text the word JOIN to 332-244-6262. Remember, you have to be at least 13 years old to join the text list. Have you already left us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts? No? What are you waiting for? Five-star reviews, especially with a comment, help the podcast to be found by other people. So do it now. Like, right now. Okay? Now. Hey, we're on the search for podcast guests. If you're a student, seventh grade or higher, who has ever seen, I don't know, some sus, moist behavior on Roblox or Discord, because, hey, who hasn't? Let us know. If we use your story in an episode, you'll get some merch. And don't worry, we'll never, ever, ever, ever use your real name or any other detail which might reveal your identity, because we're not idiots. You can either leave a voicemail at 332-244-6262 or email a voice memo to guests at BigMamasHousePodcast.com. Thanks. This episode of Big Mama's House Podcast has been brought to you ad-free by our fans. If you would like to learn more about supporting this podcast and this topic, visit www.patreon.com forward slash Big Mama's House. Hey, welcome back to Big Mama's House Podcast. Before we get started, I'd like to ask you all for just a quick little favor. Can you please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts? It only takes a couple of clicks, and here's why. Almost every other podcast network uses Apple ratings, and your five-star review would make a huge difference to how we're ranked. You don't even have to use Apple Podcasts to leave a review. Thanks so much. Hi there. This is Season 1, Episode 8, How Online Teen Love turned into a quadruple homicide. Before we dive in, if you've been to any of my live presentations, you'll know that I'm a bit addicted to true crime everything. It could be just an unfortunate byproduct of what I do for a living or some need for any kind of criminal resolution. Either way, in my live presentations, I get to share my obsession via the shows and the podcasts, which I recommend to my audiences. So with that in mind... I wanna take a second to recommend my favorite true crime program, Crime Junkie Podcast, Write It Down. When I'm on a long drive headed to a speaking gig, I find myself binge listening to shows while yelling at the hosts who I love, but who can't hear me and who never answer me. Ashley and Britt. I'm in the car yelling, obviously it's the guy in the white van. Or why didn't they swap the door handle for DNA? They also have this awesome catchphrase be weird be rude stay alive meaning don't be afraid to be rude or act weird if you feel threatened or nervous and as a latin girl from queens i am the embodiment of be weird be rude stay alive and i'll add to that with my own catchphrase which is the social contract ends where your safety begins ashley and Britt at crime junkie podcast choose great cases and i love the depth of detail i only have one teeny tiny criticism they're both dog people and here at big mama's house podcast we know that cats are superior Ah! but that's okay we'll agree to disagree If you love true crime, then check out Crime Junkie Podcast. And by the way, I'm not being paid in any way for this, what sounds like, advertisement. I'm certain that they don't even know I'm alive. That's okay. This won't be the first time uh, that my obsession remains one-sided. I'm looking at you, Jason Momoa. If you've already listened to the pilot episode of this podcast... You will have heard me say that I will not use the full names of victims or their families or perpetrators or their families in any of my podcasts. True to form, in this episode, I have changed the names of all the individuals except for the first names of the victims. I thought it important to use their first names only. On the other hand, it's also important to cite sources and to give credit to those journalists who spend an extraordinary amount of time chasing down details for the rest of us. All of the sourcing is included in the liner notes of this episode, and although I make every effort to vet any content I use, any errors made in compiling this episode are mine only. As I was researching this episode, I kept coming back to the same thought, the disconnect between perception and truth, how what we perceive can be so completely different from the reality and what happens in the aftermath. And nowhere is this more true than on the internet the relative lack of verifiability makes it so. Dating sites, social media platform, LinkedIn, product reviews, Yelp, or any place with user-generated content, people can say anything they want, and usually they do. These untruths can range from maliciously deceptive, like the con man sweet-talking the lonely widow out of her entire retirement savings, all the way to the little white lies we tell about ourselves as a defense mechanism, smoothing out the sharp edges of our reality. Like me saying that I'm, quote, passionate about this topic, which really means I'm angry all the time. And now that I'm perimenopausal, I'm angry and I'm hot all the time. Online, it's impossible to verify that what you're reading and seeing is accurate until you engage in some sort of in real life confirmation. Then, if you're open-minded enough, you'll either see your error or confirm your opinion. This is the main lesson I try to drill into the heads of my student audiences. When consuming any kind of content online, it's not enough to ask, is this true? You also have to ask, how do I know it's true? As always, the devil's in the details. So as we go through this case, think about how that disconnect repeats over and over. How the perception of the thing is so different from its reality. This story begins in 2008, back to the days of MySpace, before anyone had even heard of Mark Zuckerberg. And social media wasn't even really a thing yet. You dialed up to get onto the internet across a terrifying and otherworldly pattern of warlock pings and screeches. Beyond email, chat rooms and bulletin boards hosted these ad hoc communities where people could connect with each other around specific topics or no topic at all. As old-timey and quaint as that sounds, don't go ask the soda jerk at the five and dime for a root beer float. Just, oh, wait, if you're under 30 years old, let me back up. A soda jerk is a kid at a store. Oh, wait, a store is a place where you go to physically buy things, where you can use dimes. Oh, wait, okay, dimes are money made out of metal that your mom made you carry in case you needed to use a payphone. Okay, so a phone is what you use to call people to hear their voice. Okay. All right, never mind. Back in the infancy of the internet, over a soundtrack of You've Got Mail, there was already a large and growing seedy underbelly of the internet, because of course there was. That process of assessing the environment to search for any opportunity to exploit is the job of any decent con man or business owner. You know, funny how I... Never put those two things together till this second. And just like organized crime flourished in the United States as an accidental result of prohibition laws, the expansion and development and use of the internet has also spawned colorful cons and dark money-making corners. And just like any other massive social shift like television ownership, the world was both improved and damaged significantly. While we were receiving enough AOL and CompuServe CDs in the mail to fill several landfills... Nigerian princes were desperate to give us their money for a small fee. Pornography of every flavor was suddenly just available. And online dates which ended in murder were already making the evening news. Widespread use of the web did not create the con. It was and is the vehicle being used to deliver the con. In late 2008, in a small town in Virginia, population around 8,000, 16-year-old Emma is struggling she feels like a bit of a misfit in a small town where misfits stick out rather obviously. To complicate matters, her parents' marriage is ending, amicably, but still ending. Despite their impending split, Emma's mother Deborah, university professor, and her father Mark, a Presbyterian pastor, get along extremely well and really are trying to co-parent Emma through a tough time. Feeling isolated, Emma embraces a new look and a new interest. She finds and falls in love with horrorcore music. Horrorcore is a musical subgenre of hip-hop, and it's what you get if, like, a Stephen King novel, like IT, and hardcore rap had a baby. It's super dark, focuses mostly on death, some sexual violence sprinkled in for good measure. But like any other category of anything, it has a spectrum of intensity and content. HorrorCore has been blamed for everything from inciting mass murders like the Columbine shootings to other violent crimes including rape, necrophilia, and cannibalism. While I have the utmost respect and agree wholeheartedly with the common sense concern that kids, especially young kids, NOT consume excessively violent content, obviously, I hesitate to blame any one crime on listening to particular songs or bands any more than we can blame law school admission for Ted Bundy's years-long murder spree. Having said that, as you've heard me say endless times before in this podcast and live events, young brains are pliable brains. Young brains lack a full set of impulse control. Young brains are not done cooking. Their Happy Meals are still missing a couple of French fries. They're a couple of rolls short of a full picnic basket. You get it? They're not done cooking. So when you take this young, uncooked brain and you marinate it in whatever insert blank thing, there's gonna be an impact. There's a vast difference between a kid who likes to play a first-person shooter game and plays an hour or two every day, but also has an active social life outside of gaming, versus the kid who never leaves this room, doesn't sleep, doesn't see daylight, has no human contact, feels disconnected, sits in a dark bedroom by himself playing that game for 10 hours a day. If that first kid, the one with the full social life outside of the video game, commits some gruesome act of violence, should we blame the game? How about the second kid whose only life is the game? I believe based on what I've seen firsthand, in addition to the body of scientific research in this area, that the nature of online content consumption, always available, never ending, bingeable, is one of the major contributors to diminished mental health globally. And just as a production note, I'm currently working on a longer written piece on this topic, so stay tuned for that. But even way back in 2008, in the world in which Emma was living, smart businesses had already seized the opportunity and were using tools online to leverage the power of the web. A popular horrorcore music label had cultivated an active online community, and as Emma became more immersed in her fandom, she became more deeply involved with her new online friends. Here was a place where she didn't feel like a misfit, where people got her and where she was able to be herself. One of the broadcast sources I used to research this piece, and they're all listed in the liner notes, did a fantastic job of breaking down the story, including interviews with the owners of that horrorcore music label. For the purposes of this episode, we'll call them Rose and Spike, not their real names. As soon as I saw Rose and Spike, I thought, unconsciously, I didn't even try to think it or not think it. Clearly one of these two had something to do with the murders multiple piercings covered in tattoos. Why did I jump to that conclusion based on no information? Why? I pride myself on not allowing any sort of bigotry to enter my world. So why did my brain make that ignorant and short-sighted leap? Probably for the same reason that it was so hard for Ted Bundy's friends and his victims to suspect that he was a serial killer. Because we want the world to make sense because the primitive part of the human brain tries to find patterns in some caveman holdover of involuntary impulses. We want to be able to point to something objective, like a mental checklist of variables to be aware of. Piercings, check. Multiple tattoos, check and check. But that's not reality. Here's just the first instance in our journey where flawed perception does not match the reality. In this case, it was my flawed perception. Watching Rose describe how she got to know Emma, In that interview is really quite moving. Apparently, Emma had sent Rose and Spike a fan video she had filmed in her own bedroom, gushing about how much she loved the music and how much the community meant to her. As time went on, Rose sees Emma as a friend. And she describes Emma's kindness, her sweet personality, and how much she genuinely liked this kid who lived thousands of miles away and supported the music. Rose talks about how she feels badly that Emma's isolated in her small town. And in an amazing act of intentional kindness, Rose, who sees her fan base as a sort of family, virtually introduces 16-year-old Emma to Mel, an 18-year-old West Virginia girl and fellow fan. Rose thought that Mel and Emma would hit it off, and she was right. Mel and Emma became fast friends, constantly talking and chatting online. A few months later, they got to meet in person at a horrorcore concert in Chicago. Later, Rose decides to share Emma's amazing fan video on the community's message boards, which had the intended effect. Emma was honored and must have felt that she had landed in a place where she was totally accepted. Emma's video was a big hit with the hundreds of fans who watched it. There was one fan in particular who really, really liked her video. We'll call him Scott, not his real name. He's 20 years old and lives in California. Scott, a self proclaimed aspiring horrorcore rapper, begins messaging Emma, telling her how much he liked the video, how pretty she is, etc. Well, they bond and they spend hours chatting. Very quickly, they begin to refer to each other as boyfriend and girlfriend. One of Emma's hometown friends comments on the speed of their romance that they said, I love you almost right away. In the meantime, a fellow online community member describes Scott as, quote, one of those kids who never left his house and his entire life revolved around being online. Everyone knew about their romance, even their virtual friends. They all became aware of their relationship when Emma and Scott publicly professed their love for each other in the online community. Emma couldn't wait until the day when they would be able to meet in real life. This boy who sent her sweet messages and was just as in love with her as she was with him But let's just pause here for a moment for a location check. Where are we? Emma is a girl who has been struggling to, let's call it, find a place where she can be seen, where she feels like she belongs. Not only does she find that, an actual community of actual people. She connects with Rose, who genuinely cares and supports her. She connects with Mel, who becomes her best friend. And now she's found the love of her life, Scott. Imagine back to when you were 16 years old. Emma may be described as having been, quote, struggling, but the reality is that we all struggled. Granted, some struggle more than others, but the adolescent experience is inherently difficult, and struggle is baked in. And I believe our greatest mental health need, especially in adolescence, is to feel like somebody sees you. And just to be clear, Emma has amazing parents, who were present and did love and support her, but when you're 16, sometimes that doesn't feel like it's enough. Some months pass, and Emma and Scott are still going strong. Emma and Mel are still besties. When another Horrorcore concert is scheduled for September 2009 in Detroit, Michigan, they know they want to be there. Emma and Mel desperately want to go, even though Emma lives in Virginia, Mel lives in West Virginia, concerts in Detroit, Not only that, but Emma wants to work it out somehow to have Scott go with them to the concert. She also wants Scott to come to Virginia, go to the concert, and then visit for a week afterwards. Emma appealed and, well, begged her parents, Deborah and Mark. Now, here's the the thing, right? So I have kids, and they've both gone through their teen years. Even removing the obvious online boyfriend-stranger aspect of this, even if we remove that, if my daughter had said, I wanna to go to this horrorcore concert, a 10 hour drive away with my best friend and my boyfriend who I've never met. Oh, and can you please stay here for a week? I think I may have laughed until I peed my pansies. I'm not saying that because I'm negatively judging her parents, I'm saying the exact opposite. Here are two well-educated, hard working small town people who see their sweet girl struggling and even though they personally are not in love with their daughter's taste in music, which admittedly can be extremely violent, they still are willing to support her, love her, and accept her. And even though Deborah and Mark are divorced, they decide to not only allow Scott to come and visit, but that they together will drive the three kids to Detroit to the concert, stay there, and come back home. Once home, the plan is that Scott can stay at Emma's mom's house for another week. To me, this is parental kindness and love and empathy made real. In a particularly heartbreaking interview with Mel's mother and brother, we'll call them Christine and Andrew, not their real names, Andrew describes his relationship with his sister as more of a best friend. And Christine talks about how she always encouraged her children to travel, to see the world outside of their little slice of life. So when Emma gets the green light from her parents, Mel asks her mom, Christine, who is completely in support of her daughter going on an adventure with Emma and her parents. Well, the plan is made, the day arrives. Mel travels from her home in West Virginia to Emma's house in Virginia. Deborah, Mark, Emma, and Mel then head to the airport to pick up Scott, after which they will drive straight to Detroit. Throughout the drive to the airport, and even in the moment just before meeting Scott for the first time in their seven-month relationship, Emma is texting Rose, telling her how excited and nervous she is. After all, in just a few minutes, she's going to meet in person the love of her life. In an interview, Rose explains that within seconds of meeting Scott, Emma texts Rose multiple times saying that this was a terrible, horrible mistake. That the Scott she was meeting in person was nearly unrecognizable from the person she thought he was. So here's the second time in the story that we're seeing the disconnect from perception to reality. Scott seemed strange and creepy, and Elma felt super uncomfortable around him. Mel also felt strange around Scott, but what could they do? Mistake or not, all five of them were now headed for a full week of nonstop contact, or so they thought. All five of them drive the nine hours from the airport to their hotel in Detroit, and they arrive in the evening. It had already been decided ahead of time that the girls would share one room with Deborah, Mark would be in his own room, and Scott would take a room on his own. Part of the draw for fans to this event, beyond just the concert itself, is the personal access to the artists. All of the musical acts stay at the same hotel as the fans. And in this way, their community gets to spend time together in real life. This includes Rose and Spike and the rest of the fans, who know, by the way, all about Emma and Scott's romance. They saw it all over the message boards. And who now have the opportunity to observe their interactions firsthand, up close, and in person. While the bands and the fans mingle in between sets, many people observed that Scott was very awkward and that Emma seemed uncomfortable being around him. During the show itself, they didn't even stand anywhere near each other. However, Rose and Spike both describe Emma and Mel as having a great time dancing and really getting into the spirit of the event. One of the artists even says that it was obvious that Scott didn't fit in with that group, which was, quote, odd because we don't fit in anywhere. And I have to wonder if that point wasn't lost on Scott, that even within the self-described land of misfits, he couldn't even fit in here. After the concert, together, the group of five drive back to Emma's mother's house in Virginia. Emma's dad, Mark, pulls up to Deborah's house at 11.50 p.m., shy of midnight, on Sunday night, September 13, 2009, where Scott is now meant to spend a probably not romantic but awkward week visiting with Emma. They walk into the house, get their sleeping arrangements sorted, and go to bed. But first, Mel texts her mom just to check in and says, quote, we're back, we had a great time, I'm really tired, so we'll talk tomorrow. I love you. Catherine, Mel's mom, is glad to get the check-in, happy her daughter had a good time and all is well. Catherine can't know it yet, but that text will be the last time that she ever hears from her daughter ever again. The next morning, on Monday, September 14th, Mel's brother Andrew texts his sister and she doesn't respond which is odd because she always responds right away. So Andrew asks his mom if she's heard from Mel yet and she said no but that Andrew shouldn't worry because they probably just went out and are having fun. Andrew's not so sure and keeps calling and texting throughout the day with no response. That evening after sending dozens of texts, dozens of calls, Catherine starts getting nervous because Mel would never go that long without checking in and she especially would never ignore so many missed calls and texts. Catherine isn't sure what to do, so she contacts Rose. Catherine starts thinking maybe it's a possibility that the three kids ran away together. But they decide that Emma and Mel would never let their parents worry. But if they hadn't run away together, what other explanation could there be? At this point... Rose and Catherine and Andrew are calling the two girls' phones nonstop. Rose just felt something was terribly wrong. So she and Spike reach out to their online community and spread the word that all three kids have disappeared and ask for help or information of any kind. It turns out that one of the other fans in the group, Mike, not his real name, and he says that he knows Scott personally, that he'll reach out to him and see what he can find out. At this point, both of the girls' cell phones are going straight to voicemail. Now Mel's father, John, decides that he's just going to get in his car and drive to Emma's house in Virginia from their home in West Virginia, 200 miles away, to find out what's going on. When he gets to Emma's house, he knocks on the door and gets no response. The house is silent and there's no movement. While John is still trying to get any response from inside the house, a male neighbor comes out from the other end of the yard and approaches John. John asks the neighbor if he has seen two young girls and the neighbor says yes, that they had just left and said they would be back soon. John is relieved and drives all the way back to West Virginia. What John couldn't have known is that the so-called neighbor he just met isn't a neighbor at all, it was Scott. Despite that momentary sigh of relief from John's interaction with the helpful neighbor, Catherine and Andrew still have not been able to get in touch with Mel, and another whole day has passed. Catherine decides to call Emma's house phone number. They call, and call, and call, and call. It rings, and rings, and rings, and nobody picks up the phone, and hours are passing. Finally, they call again, and someone answers the phone. It's Scott. He tells Catherine that Deborah and the girls went out to dinner, that their car broke down, and that they're waiting for AAA. More hours pass, and now, almost 48 hours after the last text ever sent by Melanie, Catherine again calls Emma's house number, and Scott picks up the phone once more. But this time, his story has changed. He now tells Catherine that Deborah and the girls went to go visit Emma's father, Mark. Catherine calls Mark, and he actually answers his phone. Mark says that he hasn't heard from his ex-wife or the girls since he dropped them off two nights prior after the concert. Catherine can tell. She can really hear the concern in Mark's voice at this point. Mark says that he's leaving right then to see what's going on. He promises Catherine that he'll call her the moment that he knows anything, and after all, he only lives 15 minutes away. Fifteen minutes later... He arrives at the house and uses his own key to get into the house. That would be the last time anyone sees or hears from Mark ever again. Catherine, Mel's mom, reaches out to the local police department in Emma's town. Since Mel is already 18, she doesn't figure there's going to be much that they're going to do. She asks about car accidents, but there haven't been any. And so the local police department sends out a patrol car just to do a welfare check around 11.30 p.m. The police officer goes to the door. Scott answers and tells him that the girls have gone to the movies. So the police officer just leaves. Now Mark isn't calling Catherine back either. And all of a sudden, Scott calls Catherine and says that he's hearing voices and people walking around the house particularly in the basement, he tells Catherine that he's scared. He says that he never saw Mark. Catherine doesn't know what to think. She tells him to hang up and call 911. So he does. And get this, it's only one hour since the last police car left. A patrol car shows up for the second time in an hour around 12.30 a.m. Two police officers knock on the door. Scott lets them in, directs them to the basement, They don't find anything except animal excrement everywhere, and then they just leave. This is the third time that we have the disconnect between perception and the truth on the part of the police officer. At this point, Mel's family back in West Virginia must not know what to think. Catherine is still communicating with Rose, who's also trying to find out whatever she can from the online community. And while Catherine and Rose are on the phone... Spike receives a phone call on his phone from Scott's friend, Mike. Mike tells Spike that he spoke with Scott, that Scott is still at Emma's house. Mike says that Scott just confessed to killing all four of them, Deborah, Emma, Mel, and Mark. Catherine is now calling again on the other phone. Rose is inconsolable and Spike is the one who has to tell Catherine that her daughter is dead. Spike describes Catherine's scream as a sound that he will never forget and can still hear in his head. Spike then calls the police department in Emma's town and tells them what Mike said, plus he directs them to Scott's photo on his MySpace page to aid in his capture. On September 18, 2009, Police find all four bodies in the house, and Scott is gone. The following day, Scott is found at the airport waiting for his flight back to California, which would not leave for another 24 hours. An airport security guard sees that he matches the police alert flyer and holds him until the police arrives. He's arrested and charged with four murders. At the time of his arrest, investigators recover a digital camera, which contains a video that Scott recorded of himself, saying that he knows he'll have to pay for what he's done and he was considering committing suicide. Scott confesses to all four murders in order to avoid the death penalty. That deal requires a full and complete confession. And here's what he said. On the night that they returned from the concert, after Mark dropped them off, he felt completely rejected by Emma. He was angry and began drinking alcohol and took some prescription medications. Then he grabbed a wood-splitting maul, which looks like an ax, from the woodpile outside. He went back into the house and first went into the living room where Mel was sleeping on the couch. And while she slept, he bludgeoned her to death with the ax, crushing her skull. Then he went upstairs to Deborah's bedroom and beat her to death with the ax, again, while she slept. He kept Emma for last, back downstairs where he again beat Emma to death while she slept in her own bed. Deborah, Emma, and Mel were all dead by 3 a.m. on that first night that they had returned from the concert. A few days later, when Emma's father, Mark, let himself into the house, Scott murdered him as well with the same ax. He then steals Mark's car and then tries to drive himself to the airport. But at four o'clock in the morning, a sheriff's deputy gives him a ticket for driving without a license after he got the car stuck in a ditch. The car had never been reported stolen, so a tow truck was called. The tow truck driver tows the car and drops Scott off at a Sheetz gas station. The driver tells police that Scott smelled like a rotting animal. At around 7 a.m., a cab picks him up, and during that hour-long cab ride, Scott tells the driver that he had confronted his girlfriend about a text he found on her phone from another guy. Someone Emma had met at the concert texted her to say that he loved her. When Scott confronted her about it, she became angry and accused him of invading her privacy. He told the cab driver that he waited till she fell asleep, then he just left the house. Amazingly, while Scott is in the cab and on their way to the airport, the cab driver gets pulled over for speeding. Scott calmly gets out of the car to smoke a cigarette. Later, the cab driver tells investigators that Scott stunk like something rotting, yet another missed opportunity for law enforcement to grab him. After the cab drops him off at the airport, Scott tries to get some sleep in the baggage claim area while waiting for his flight the following day. That's when the security guard recognizes him and holds him for the police. When asked why he committed the murders, Scott said, that he killed Emma because he wanted an exclusive relationship with her and that wasn't working out the way he thought it would. As for his motive for murdering Deborah, Mel, and Mark, Scott says that they were just in the wrong place at the wrong time. The prosecutor made it a point to add in his statement that horrorcore lyrics and music played absolutely no part in this gruesome crime and that Scott acted completely on his own. Scott was convicted of the murders of Emma, Mel, deborah and mark and is sentenced to life without parole in a super security federal prison for her part scott's mother could not bring herself to believe that her son had really committed these horrible crimes although she no longer lived with her two children they lived with their father she described her son as shy and quiet a boy who spent most of his time alone in his room on his computer This case is heinous and tragic and weird all at the same time. Why on earth would Scott have first called Catherine to say he was scared and then actually call 911? Was he trying to confess? Was he trying to get caught? In telling the cab driver just a portion of the real story, how he had had a confrontation with his girlfriend but then left the house, he almost seems like he's heading towards a confession, or at least wants to get caught. Ironically, the least weird thing in this case is the horrorcore music. If we can set aside the graphic and violent content for a moment, throughout the interviews, these individuals say over and over that they don't fit into a, quote, normal world, whatever normal means. So they've cordoned off this little corner of the universe just for themselves and for each other, a place where they can matter and where, most importantly, they can be seen and recognized and acknowledged In one of the broadcast segments, Rose says that very thing, that she knew what Emma was feeling in her isolation because she too had felt it. That crushing loneliness brought many of those fans together, and certainly there may be many fans who just like the music, but regardless, they found a place. Emma had a perception in her mind of what Scott was going to be like in person, and her perspective, (laughs) he fell very short when she finally met him. On the other side, Scott was isolated, spent all day on his computer alone in his room. He too was not going to a traditional school and finish his high school online. He somehow found his way to the same online community. His perception of Emma was, as hers was, that he had found the love of his life. And in truth, in reality, she fell far short of his perception when she failed to reciprocate his feelings. And not only did she not reciprocate his love, it was now all out in the open in their community. His humiliation and embarrassment would now be laid bare in the single place where Scott felt like he was accepted. I'm not making excuses for an obviously unstable murderer. This horrific story is heartbreaking for all the families, including Scott's family. The combined loss in this crime is unfathomable. If you've already listened to episode five, that's the COPA episode part two, you will have heard my interview of the private school principal called Isadora. She always says, quote, we are made for the other, meaning that we need other people. We need human connection. So here's what I am saying. If human connection and the need to be seen is our highest need, our need for the other, then crimes like Scott's, rooted in some psychological instability that I have no expertise to even guess at, then crimes like his go far beyond just a broken heart or disappointment of not getting his way. Someone who feels like they literally have nothing else, that this relationship is going to save them, when that doesn't pan out what's left. What I'm saying is that the more we feel isolated and the greater our desperation for human connection, the bigger the consequences, the bigger the aftermath, the bigger the boom when we don't get it. Again, not an excuse for Scott or the two long list of mass murderers, serial killers, and sociopaths who are not surprisingly often described by their neighbors as loners. Would any of those loner murderer types not have committed heinous crimes if they had a bunch of friends they could rely on, people who supported them emotionally, a social life, or engaged in any kind of community? I don't know, but it wouldn't have made it worse. At the beginning of this episode, I asked you all to mark the number of times that a person's perception did not match the truth of the situation. We all do this. We do it daily. We can't be right all the time, nor is it possible to have all of the necessary information in every situation. That's not how the world works. However, if Emma and Scott had met each other in real life, say at school, they would have realized immediately it wasn't going to work out. However, the nature of online content consumption and virtual human communication is such that there is misdirection and bias built into the system. And when you don't have that in real life experience to help your decision making, you're left building castles in your head which have little chance of coming true or do come true in a be careful what you wish for kind of a way. I'm going to give Mel's mother, Catherine, the last word. This is her advice for parents. I would say to parents, please, please, you know, be more aware of who, of who your kids are talking with online. Online, your relationships online, it's an illusion. The person will only let you see what they want you to see, so just please, I don't care if they scream and they yell at you about, you know, that you look at who they're talking to, their messages, it doesn't matter. They'll be angry at you, but at least they'll be alive. Well, that's our show. Thanks for tuning in. Especially at this time, when it sometimes feels like the world is on fire, reach out to the people you love. Dig your kids out of the groove they've worn in the couch or on their beds. Watch a video of dogs surfing or gerbils eating teeny tiny pizzas. Laugh a little, and remember, parenting is hard. Be kind to yourself. This has been a Big Mama's House production hosted by Jesse Weinberger. The outro music was written and mastered by Caleb Weinberger.